Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio, joined as always by the 42's Murray Kinsler. Murray, how are you this morning? I'm great. I really like your Border Reavers jersey. May they rest in peace. A blast from the past. Really nice communication. <laughs> Enjoyed my day off there a few years ago. Good few years ago now. <laughs> We're joined as well by Bernard Jackman. Nice to have you here, Bernard. How are you? you very good, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Uh, we've got a fairly bumper show on the way, just to let you know what is coming up. We'll be discussing Munster's coaching situation. We'll be looking back at the AIL final between Cork Con and Clon Tariff. Uh, we've got a chat with Rob Carney and we'll look ahead as well, obviously, to uh, the most mouthwatering European Cup final uh, imaginable, certainly in rugby anyway. <laughs> it's been a fairly exciting week of European football too. Uh, but just to start off with, bit of news in London Irish, coming out of London Irish this morning, Murray. Uh, Declan Kidney and Les Case have been fairly busy getting ready for uh, their return to the Premiership. Yeah, they've kind of finally confirmed all the long rumoured transfers coming into the club this uh, summer as they return to the Premiership next season. So have a little list here. Sean O'Brien, Paddy Jackson, Adam Coleman, Wysaki Naholu, Sakopi Kepu, Nick Phipps, Curtis Rona, Alan Dell. They're the new signings confirmed. Maybe there's a couple more to come. You've got four Wallabies, All Blacks wing who scored 16 tries in 26 tests. Obviously, copious amounts of Irish experience there. Scotland prop as well. It's really impressive recruitment. Um, I think people are already kind of questioning the Marenta salary cap. The, the the point there is probably that they haven't had the most expensive squad coming up from the, the championship. Um, but there's existing quality there as well. You, you also have guys like Brendan Macken and Connor Gilson and two Irish lads playing there. And obviously, the coaching team is of interest having had such a, a long history in, in the game here. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that blends together. It is a challenge with so many new signings to to, to put it all together. But, wow, it's exciting if you're a London Irish fan with a, a new stadium to come a couple of years down the line as well. Um, amazing times for London Irish. Yeah, Bernard, it must be amazing for a coach to have that type of support from the powers that be. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Um, I, I don't think there'd be any, like, there's any fear to them around a salary cap, as, as Murray said. A lot of their current players... You know, would have taken pay cuts to go back to the championship. The two of those guys would be marquee signings, probably Sean and, and the Holo, I'd imagine. So they come outside the salary cap. So, um, and I think to be honest, if London Irish don't do this kind of recruitment, they have no chance of staying up. Yeah. Um, if you look at the money that Worcester, Newcastle, so Newcastle spent more this year than ever, um, based on the fact that they had the top six finish last year. They've got a new owner, or an owner who's come in recently enough, and he gave Dean Richards. A war chest to go to war, uh, to go to war to recruit to try and become a championship cup side, and they've gone down. And I mean, the financial repercussions of, of that are, are massive. And London Irish in twelve months' time, they're moving to Brentford, you know. So, um, which is obviously a huge investment. And you know, when they move to Brentford, they want to be in the Premiership. So it's absolutely critical that next year they survive. But they're going to be competing with teams like Worcester, um, Bristol. Um, well, ho- hopefully Bristol pa- you know, become a top six club. But the the margin of error, there's no one in that league who isn't paying the kind of salaries that London Irish are going to pay now. In actual fact, I would say they'll still probably be one of the uh, probably least, uh, the squad with the least amount of depth. Mm. Even though they've, made, they've signed six or seven high-profile guys, you're still a championship side. And... and um, you know, look at the type of players that Bristol had last year in the championship and then they added to it as well. And until four weeks ago, they were right in the mix to, to go down. So it's uh, it's the minimum you can do. But it, I'm sure Declan is obviously very happy that uh, he has that support and they're giving themselves a, a real fighting chance. Mm. I can't wait to see Wysaki Naholo, particularly if he gets back in form. He hasn't been great for the Highlanders. Possibly this move's in weighing on his mind, but he's certainly lost a bit of form. But 
getting him back to his best will be a thrill to watch, especially a bit closer to here as well. A uh, chance to watch all those games at, at decent hours rather than get on first thing in the morning. But he is just a thrill to watch. He's brilliant at like jackaling and he's so good in contact, but also that top end speed and, and the power to break out of tackles. Just a joy to watch. So I think it's going to be fun there uh, seeing how that, how that team goes. Yeah, uh, this will be the last time I mentioned football on this podcast, but you hear the phrase in football, um, it's good to get the business done early. Just the fact that London Irish would have had a lot of these deals tied up for months, really. Would it have, give, would it have given uh, Declan Kidney that opportunity to nearly start building towards next season ahead of time? Just 100%. So the beauty of being so far ahead in the in the championship um, was that they actually got Got key guys signed before they officially had the the promotion, um, and that's always the issue in other in other, in other comps or the or the Premiership Championship um, promotion battle is that if you're neck and neck with somebody, um, so Bristol for example went up a couple of times through the playoffs, and uh, it's it hampered their recruitment because let's be honest, at the end of May, those marquee players aren't on the market; they're, they're tied up. So if you're not if you're not ready to go to to, to war in February March. Um, and have clarity around your budget and have clarity around your future. You're not going to be able to sign like so Sean O'Brien or, or or Adam Coleman or sorry Coleman or or Kepu. Those deals were done months ago. You know, everyone knew they were done. Those guys were on the market, off the market. You know, and and people knew where they were going. Obviously, they're only announced it now, and and they're doing it. Um, they're doing it day by day. They seem to announce a new player. But I think that's that's it for the moment as from what I know um, in terms of big players but uh, I'd say they'll leave a little bit of room that post World Cup you know if someone came available that they could add to the squad they will have to uh, do everything in their power to make sure they, they stay up next year and, it, um, and, and it's now building that cohesion you know and also um, you know Sean probably might be at the World Cup so he won't come back till uh, post World Cup, uh, I'm not sure what Kepu's situation is. Naholo won't make the the All Blacks, but uh, you want to have as many guys as you can there first day of preseason um, and start to build that that team spirit, cohesion, and understanding. Yeah, and preseason starting pretty soon by all accounts, which is yeah. great for some of the players. They have a three month preseason ahead of them. The championship season's obviously over now, and and they can get back into it pretty soon. So. Bit of a slog ahead for a couple of guys. Bit of a slog. Things looking up, though, for the fifth province, as somebody suggested to us <laughs> yeah. on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Down south, uh, in one of the original four, uh, pre-season might creep up on Munster fairly quickly. A lot of business to sort out there, Murray. Obviously, the news emerged during the week that Felix Jones and Jerry Flannery had rejected uh, contract offers and will depart at the end of the season it's a bit of upheaval at a fairly inopportune time if you are going to be returning to training uh, so soon. Yeah, absolutely. That planning's taking place now and um, we're really not far off them reconvening and particularly the coaches getting together and, and planning out their strategy, their game plans, their planning for the whole season, really. you got to get that done early before the players are even back in. So it is a concerning thing to happen at this stage and especially at a time when with Johan van Graan's contract extension it looked like they were going to have some stability finally which has been missing in, in the coaching staff now they've got two coaches confirmed for next season which is really worrying and look Felix Jones possibly was going to be pushed a little bit to the sideline if there was another coach coming in to oversee attack but certainly they weren't planning on, on losing Jerry Flannery they offered both these guys contracts they wanted both of them to stay on as part of their coaching team but um, now Johan van Graan is almost left scrabbling, scrabbling around a little bit um, and they really need to get some business done really soon because there's there's several vacancies now to fill and, and how how they actually make up the, the coaching staff is going to be really interesting. I know what your take on it, Bernard, is what what do you think they need now? Um, 
it depends on what Johan wants to do. So, it, you know, if, if he wants to be the attack coach um, or, or forwards coach, well, then obviously they don't need one of those. Um, and that's... But the problem is I think he needs to... He needs to build a support team around him. I mean, the fact that for me, I would question how this is allowed to happen. Like they, let's be honest, in terms of they were looking not, they're looking to still be in this having a season. I mean, realistically, they could have lost on on uh, on Saturday to Benetton, mm. which means you know this decision would have happened in off season, and it would have just been absolutely chaotic. You know, and it's still quite chaotic. So I, I think they'll when they review this, they look at how to let this happen. Two coaches um, be under contract or be off contract in a month's time and not be tied down or told or know where they they were going. You know, like this should have happened um, in January at the latest. Make a decision on them, make an offer, negotiate and give them a deadline. You know, I think it's very poor business from their point of view that this is, they're, they're still on the open market uh, now uh, and that's left them with a, a massive uh, hole to fill. Even regardless of if they wanted to add people um, post World Cup or add someone else to the to the party. Um, if they had offered Jerry and and, uh, and Felix contracts, which you know we believe they have, and uh, I'm sure they had, um, why let it drag on and on and on and leave yourself vulnerable to to something like this? And I think it's very disruptive for them. Um, so instead of actually adding one coach, which they seem to have wanted to done, now we're going to have to find maybe three. You know, which is uh, the coaching market at the moment. Uh, although there's a few changes, um, there's a lot of guys tied up post World Cup. A lot of the guys who are going to the World Cup are actually signed already to stay on in their own countries or or go somewhere else. Um, so it's going to be interesting. He'll find three South Africans if he wants. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of South Africans who are keen to get out of South Africa and come to Europe. Uh, so it won't be an issue. It's just, I suppose, for him finding the perfect mix. And also, I mean, I think he probably needs. A little bit of support, I would say, in terms of of the the management of of, of recruitment retention. Uh, like if you look at what Guy Easterby does in in Leinster, what Bryn Cunningham does in Ulster, you know, in general now most most organisations have someone looking after the contracts, uh, and that lets the head coach um, concentrate on actually coaching and 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 managing his, his his team. So potentially that's something they'll they'll look at, uh, but I don't think it's it hasn't. Play, it's played out incredibly badly, and in fairness, other teams can take the risk on this, and it doesn't it doesn't turn out um, like this. The, the coaches sign up, you know, so it wouldn't be unheard of for for coaches to be pondering offers late into the season. Uh, but when it backfires, and when um, you know the player, the coaches decide not to not to accept the offer, it leaves you um, it leaves you hanging a little bit because you wouldn't really be out looking to replace the guys that you've offered to. Mm. You know, you'd kind of believe that. Those negotiations would would come to an end in a in a situation where both both parties agree to stay. Um, so it's uh, it's definitely a, a strange one. Listen, I've seen lots of I've seen stranger things happen in pro rugby, but um, it's not ideal. Yeah, it just as you say, it's it's a bad planning, and there's been a few different issues like that with Munster where it looks like it just hasn't been planned out at all. I mean, you look at Leinster and they lose John Fogarty to the the national team, Rob McBride. Is announced the same day. I think it was just. It was a couple hour of hours later. later. They could have had this had it within the same statement. They yeah. just staggered it. And obviously, the circumstances are different here because they made an offer, eventually gets refused, yeah. and probably because one of probably Felix Jones' decision was linked to Jerry Flannery making his decision to to yeah. also depart. And um, so that is a, a unique circumstance. But it's just so concerning at a time when the best clubs are are broadening their coaching staffs. Like you look at Saracens yeah. and Leinster. They both have six coaches each 
I just looked through it again. So Saracens have Mark McCall, director of rugby. Sanderson does defence and some of the forwards. I think they have Kevin Sorrell with the backs. Joe Shaw does attack and skills. Yeah. Ian Peel's on scrum and some of the forwards. And they also have Dan Vickers, the kicking coach. Yeah, and Nick Kennedy, who's now head of recruitment. Exactly. We haven't added in. And they have a CEO who's who's very much involved in the yeah. um, negotiations with Nick. Yeah. So Mark can Mark doesn't have to worry about that. You know, obviously he's he's involved in those discussions, but he doesn't have to actually look people in the eye and tell them, you know, they're not worth X or Y or yeah. they're not being retained on you know, until until it comes they come to that decision. And that's that allows him then, I suppose, focus on the day to day rugby matters. Mm. Um and that's like I feel sorry, a little bit sorry for Johan if he doesn't. I'm not sure how wide his remit is, but he does look like um, he has a huge. He already had a huge amount in his place with Felix and Jerry there, um, and now now it's like Razzie came in. There's very few guys who can do everything. Razzie could do everything. Um, Joe Schmidt can pretty much do everything um, mm. in terms of media. Uh, uh, I suppose communicate up down and beyond the field. You know, coaching, um, but most. Most people have a have a certain skill set, um, and, mo- and most coaches are their skill sets around coaching. Um, so Johan has, has got a huge amount on his plate, um, and I just think whether it's more coaches or or um, whether it's support around the non rugby stuff, um, I think that might be something that they will look at because he can get away with it for ages, um, but eventually there'll be a there'll be a situation that causes you to look at your your structure and your strategy. And it kind of exposed maybe some potential weaknesses, and this looks like it's exposed some potential weaknesses because I don't think they've been out there planning. You know, with 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 Robin McBride and Leinster, I mean Leinster knew mm. that John um, was going. You yeah. know, and they had time. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, there was guys in the market, but now in actual fact, there was really good guys in the market back then. Uh, I know the candidates they looked at, uh, and Robin is a is a is a great appointment, um, but. There's going to be less and less guys in the market now, um, and it's, it could be a bit of a, a bit of a rush. Yeah, and especially because there's two issues in that. There's trying to clarify what structure you want, which yeah. if they kept Felix Jones and Jerry Flannery would have still been a question to to resolve. But now you're left with this other question: Who can I actually find? Yeah. So it really is a it, is, it really is a mess. It, it's also interesting that there now are no, I guess, monster connections in the coaching staff, which potentially is not a bad thing. I don't know what you think, Bernard, in terms of having that homegrown um, touch with the past. Is that is that a necessary element? Because you look at Saris and Leinster, they both they both have it. I is think it, yeah, it I, I think it'd be very sad if they didn't. Like you're not talking about um you're not talking about a a, a franchise or a, a a place that has no history. You know what I mean? Like uh, like there's teams um there's teams who if you set up a a, a new team um and had loads of money, etc you would be very worried that you didn't have an identity or history um, to, to refer back to, you know, and, and that's Munster have that. And um, it doesn't matter if it's it's a while ago. Um, it's very rich. It's incredibly rich uh, history and heritage. And I thought it was amazing that they had, you know, Jerry and, um, you know, they still have Niall Donovan and a few other people in the background, um, uh, you know, strong characters who've been there in the past. But, you know, to lose Jerry and Felix... Um, I think is a blow. You know, it's it's they were part of uh, very successful regimes, and and um, I think it's really important for for the new players to be able to um, to reflect back and understand what you represent. You know, and uh, that's uh, and having people who've been there must be very reassuring. You know, particularly someone like Jerry who um, was part of 
you know, some great Munster teams and was the ultimate professional. And I'd say it was very hard for him to, to deal with, um, I suppose, failure. You know, for someone like him, lives in Limerick, um, it's from Munster, you know, Munster true and true. And, you know, to even though they haven't, it hasn't been a real failure, I mean, you know, semi-finals of Champions Cups, yeah. etc., is certainly not, um, not failure. But, you know, he's used to and he expects to win. And I'd say internally, same with, with Axel. I mean, I think, you know, Axel obviously loved Munster so much. Not to be able to bring that success that he was part of as a player must have been incredibly hard. Yeah, that, I think that kind of answers one of the questions we got on Instagram from Shawnee Mason, who asked if Munster's identity is being eroded. Obviously, Andy Dunn on this podcast often talks about their identity on the field, but this is more to do with their identity off the field. Uh, another question that Shawnee asks as well, and it's a question asked by many uh, listeners this week, uh, regards Paul O'Connell and Ronan O'Gara, two guys obviously who are uh, major parts of that heritage to which you allude Bernard and at least one of whom is probably technically on the market. Do you see that as being feasible? One or both of them coming in to fulfil either of those two roles vacated by Jones and Flannery? Listen, I think last week both it wasn't on the radar for either of them, but um obviously at the time there was no obvious vacancy. Potentially the you know, the fact they were talking to Howley could have been speaking to Raj, but I I, I I doubt I I doubt at the moment they'd come back, to be honest. I think uh, well, Paul needs to decide what he wants to do. I'm sure if Munster, you know, cut, reached out to Paul and were were stuck for something, he would never let them down. I mean, you know, but um, are they are they going to go there? Um, I, I I'm not sure. I'm sure. Like, I think the fact that it was this wasn't planned, you know, it probably throws everything up there in the air, and, and everything is an option again. Um, and they would never see Munster stuck. You know what I mean? They'd have an unbelievable loyalty to Munster, but I don't know if it was actually if it was part of their career plan to come back um, at this moment. Hmm. That's, why it's, that's why I'd be surprised to see. Yeah. Particularly Ron O'Gara, who's been really clever with the steps yes. he's taken in his career. And there's obviously loads of interest in him now. And it's a time of now, there's uncertainty around Munster and you don't know where this is going to go. And, you know, this could be the start of them going slightly backwards because it's a, it's a bad move for them um, at a time when it looked like, oh, they're finally getting that stability. So... I don't know, I'd be surprised to see him turn up there and yeah. he's got offers from France, doesn't he? La Rochelle have been in there for him as well. Yeah. So he's I got think, options. Yeah, he might have already been committed to somewhere else. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, he'd be, listen, he's got options everywhere uh, and rightly so and he has made very smart moves um, up to now. I'm not saying that we'll go back to Munster would be a smart move but um, potentially the fact that it's just kind of all happened quickly um, generally isn't a really good reason to go there. Um, but I think also the identity aspect I mean you still have your Peter Mahoney's you know your Keith Earls etc in the playing squad and it'll be if they go for a coaching staff that don't have that Munster DNA um, well then it's just really important that the players um, make sure that um, they're living in um, they're living uh, the culture that's kind of been been created over 20 years yeah question here from Tommy Kerr then uh, who are the available candidates for the Munster jobs, obviously, he mentions uh, Rob Howley, who you referred to there a moment ago. Uh, Wayne Smith was one of the ones we threw out last week, perhaps a little bit ambitiously. Are there any names that stand out to you? Maybe yourself first, uh, Murray, aside from Smith, Howley. Is Howley even a live option? Like, uh, has yeah, there been yeah. any developments there? Yeah, the, our understanding certainly is that he is a live option. They've been speaking to him. Um, 
I haven't heard that anything signed or anything like that, but um, potentially that would even change now. The, the actual role potentially would even change because there's obviously more vacancies there. Um, it's kind of harder to know with assistant coaches, obviously because the length of contracts and who's contracted and who's not contracted aren't really publicised. And it, it often tends to be um, something that you don't foresee because, you know, these names aren't thrown around as much. I would imagine there's a lot of people interested, though, in coaching at Munster. A lot oh, of young coaches it's a, it's who... A, no, no, for sure. Um, the, if they advertise that job, they'd get hmm. 60 candidates for each position. Um, it's just, I suppose, the, the quality. But definitely Munster... It's a huge, uh, uh, is a huge job for anyone. I, I, I wouldn't say you'd have head coaches, you know, willing to maybe become assistants because, um, because of the the stature of the of the club. So they won't. The, the only issue is really, and I, I think potentially what they might have to do is, I suppose, tap into their academy coaches f- maybe for the summer. You know, if they can't get the right people, um, you're better off starting with a skeleton squad knowing that the right person is coming in a little bit later. It's far from ideal, but they're not in an ideal situation. So I think the worst thing you could do is panic and go, we need to have five coaches for the first day of preseason and um, and rather have that than actually have the right people on board. So potentially what they might need to do is tap into um, some of the academy staff down there, Johan, get more on the field um, while they they work out what the best team is and that's that's really important it's not just the best individual you know scrum coach the best attack coach it's actually how they're all going to gel together and and what philosophy of play johan wants to to play you know and if so if there's no point getting in an attack coach who's got a completely different philosophy than than johan so uh he might be brilliant in his in his current role because he has the freedom to do uh, to implement his vision but if if that's polar opposite to what Johan wants to do I'm not saying Johan uh, isn't isn't open but um, it's really important that it's all aligned you know it has to be aligned um, and everyone's got a single vision but how much of then how much of this then is starting from scratch nearly because the way you're speaking there it's almost it's almost as though you're hearing about a team at the start of a cycle whereas Munster should be like the wheel should kind of be turning at this point Van Grand will be going into his second full season um you know, by the end of next season, he'll have been there two and a half years, and yet, in a way, it'll almost have been a first year of a new regime. I don't think so. I think if you look at where they ha- what they have at the moment, they've got a good set piece. Uh, didn't wasn't as dominant as you would expect it to be last weekend, but it's a good set piece for sure. And they've got a, a defense that's performing. So they've got two of the of the of the three uh, basic requirements. They just need to get their attack right, and if they have to start from scratch, they start from scratch. I mean, it's not working as well as it needs to to beat the top teams. Uh, some of that's down to personnel being being missing, but also you can't, you don't want to have your your attack based around the moments of brilliance from Joey Carby or Keith Earls. There's got to be more to it, you know. So uh, your lesser known players uh, have to be getting opportunities to to. To make line breaks and um, get over the gain line because of your attacking shape, rather than just oh, Joey Carby's going to pull a rabbit out of a hat. So I think that that hasn't been happening. Um, so I don't think it's a big deal to start from scratch on attack. Obviously, it will take a while to to get it to the level, but if, as long as they're they're building something that's quite um, intricate and and and, and uh, dangerous, well then you're better off starting from scratch. You know, but I definitely think they're not they're not in a bad situation. They're in two semi-finals um, this year, potential to go on and win something. Uh, they have a good set piece and a good defence at the moment. Yeah, it'd be like Howley would be an interesting one, wouldn't he? Just for the fact that 
he's got this incredible CV as an assistant with Wales, Grand Slam winner multiple times, um, and has head coached Wales as well and gone several lines towards the player and a, and a coach. And yet then you had someone like Sean O'Brien kind of questioning him slightly after the tour, which was maybe slightly misconstrued um, or probably badly expressed more so. Um, but there's almost, almost question marks. Even in Wales, they complain about him a lot. I know the, the supporters and the fans. So that would be an interesting one. He does seem to have a pretty defined way on playing the game that he wants. It's always that one three three one, which in fairness, everyone plays now really. But he has pushed Wales forwards to pass more, to, to mm. link play a bit better. For Anscombe to be that 10, um, who's linking all the, the, the pods together as well. So I think they have actually expanded that side of Wales game um, himself and Gatland in the last few years so a guy who probably has his own idea on how he wants to push a, a club or a province forward so it would be interesting then how that dynamic would work between Van Graan and, and a, a guy who's 10 years older than him um, and potentially ceding some of that control which would be a, a big ask for a guy who is obviously the top dog in the province um, we saw Leo Cullen kind of doing that with Leinster and, and bringing Stuart Lancaster in whether that's going to happen here remains to be seen but certainly an interesting name in the mix yeah, never a dull moment uh, at Munster over the last couple of years. Uh, a question here, we'll wrap up on the coaches, but a question here uh, in relation to Munster from Cahill O's underscore at Instagram or else Cahill O-S-E underscore, apologies, Cahill. Uh, he just wants to get your opinion on Leinster's approach to sign Craig Casey. Was there much in it? Uh, I, I don't think there was ever a contract on, from what I know, there was never a contract in front of him or anything like that. Um, I think it was a bit of a sounding out and probably a bit cheeky on Leinster's part. We were looking at a photo of Craig Casey and Anthony Foley in 2005. Um, I, I don't even, I haven't figured out what age he is there, but he looks very young as mascot for Munster. His family is pure Shannon and Munster Obi. Uh, I would say, imagine that would not be even entertained in his household or by himself. Um, he's Munster through and through, and he's going to be a really important player in the, in the coming years, a, a guy to build around. Probably helped him in terms of his contract a little bit maybe and, and pushing on in that regard. But he looks like a great prospect for Munster, and I, I really don't think there was ever a chance of him leaving his province. Was it just a case of uh, Leo saying this works both ways, lads? Yeah, I don't know if who who may have made the approach or even if it happened, but it's definitely no harm, I suppose, from Leinster's point of view to fire the odd shot back at the other provinces. <laughs> uh, they've certainly um, they've lost quite a few and continue to have to fight off um, offer some other provinces uh, to to try and at, at, attract their their players, their mid mid range players, really guys who maybe you can make the argument come to us and you'll, you'll play a lot more. But uh, I like I like Casey. Casey's um, he looks to be um, a real prospect, and I, I just Munster um, Munster won't let him go, and I don't think he'd want to go. You know, um, I remember when Luke Fitzgerald came out of school. Uh, obviously, he was a little bit younger than Craig, but uh, you know, highly talented and. Uh, Munster went after him as well and I know Leinster had to protect their position on that so it has happened in the past with these precocious um, precocious youngsters but generally they you very rarely leave that young generally they'll give their own province every single opportunity because that's where their passion is and um, it's only when they're 24, 25 that they find that they've they've hit a roadblock that they start to to look elsewhere but uh, listen it's no harm to I suppose test the water no, and Luke Fitzgerald's a Corkman anyway, so I think that was understandable. <laughs> uh, listen, a couple of Casey's teammates, um, under Ireland under-20s teammates, that is uh, playing in the AIL final, Bernard, which you were working at, a second title in three years for Cork Con. Uh, interesting to see some of those uh, 
I suppose Munster Academy players actually play fairly important roles when you look at Shane Daly um, Sean French was involved in Daly's try he was exceptional in the semi-final um, what did you make of the game overall and uh, just I suppose sum up what was a fairly incredible season by Con. they were just dominant throughout yeah listen I think Con. you know when you win the league by 10 or 11 points um, you kind of you know, I, I like to I often hope that they go and Win the, win the playoffs then because they have been the best team comprehensively in the competition um, I think that Con, you know they've got a I know Don Lennon spoke about after but potentially you know four or five of these guys moving on or retiring but they've got some really talented young players and I think they've got a very good coaching team um, guys who are you know you're talking about the identity around Munster but you've got guys like uh, uh, Brian Hickey um, Paul Barr Paul Barr well Paul Barr is more Leinster but he's he's going to immerse himself in Cork now um, through through Prez um, uh, Ralph Keyes etc all these boys uh, who breed Cork con um, giving it back to the, to the club and, and creating a really good environment for for their older players um you know, the likes of Hayes, and et cetera, but also now the likes of Sean French and, and Daly. And uh, I thought Sean French, he only had one moment, but well, what a moment. You know, you just see, you know, you just see that ability to, to beat people. And, and we saw it in the, in the under-20s comp. Um, and now we saw it at AI level over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I think he could be special. You know, he's, he's I know Brian Hayes probably said, oh, he's the next Stockdale. And, you know, you don't want to hype him up too much. But anything we've seen from him, he seems to have a, a little bit more than... Than your average promising youngster, which is, which is is great. And Con, listen, Con won the game with probably thirty percent possession, um, but they just showed their class when they got opportunities to to score, and um, and their defence was was excellent. So well deserved on the day. Uh, and I actually think the standard of the AIL one A, you know, top four teams, is getting better and better. You know, it's a league that doesn't get much love, um, and but in one A, uh, likes of Trinity. Uh, Tariff, Lansdowne, Cork, Con, they actually play a really good brand of rugby. The boys are all athletic, they're in good shape physically, technically they're good, and it's actually uh, probably a competition that doesn't get as much recognition as it deserves in terms of the quality of rugby in it. Yeah, why why doesn't it get that recognition? Like, what what where is it falling off? Obviously, uh, just there's no sponsor. Um, there's been a lot of rumored or a lot of changes to the to the format. You know, there's an expanded A League. Uh, which is dragging players from it. Even uh, I'd say uh, six weeks ago, there was a competition in in America where they had because of the timing of it, they had to dip into the club game. And of course, fellas are going to take that opportunity to go play for for an A side and and leave the AIL because that's the that's where everyone wants to go. But it doesn't. It just seems to be very a lack of alignment and and communication and um and understanding of of where it fits. Uh, but I I think that you know. It, People in the room, people who need to get leave their egos behind and actually say this is this is a competition that has a place, uh, particularly at the, at the higher levels. You know, I understand some of the clubs in in two A two B potentially might want to go back to a, a provincial format because of travel costs, etc. But there is clubs who want to compete on a, nas- a nationwide level, um, who want to be a, a platform for players to go and play um, at the highest level. And, um, you know, I genuinely think there is a place for I know they've got a sponsor coming in next year, Energia. Um, that'll help it. But there just needs to be, I suppose, a decision made around what a structure is um, and what, it's going- what is the best structure to-, to allow the clubs prosper, but also develop players and then try and stick to that. And not every couple of years have a have a, I suppose, a crisis meeting and and, and, and maybe change then because that, that doesn't give you any uh, sustainability or, or um, I suppose, concrete um, foundations to grow, to grow. 
Mm, that's the key thing. Um, yeah, first of all, just echo that it was such an enjoyable final. Um, and the quality of rugby, I totally agree, was superb. Cork Khan spoke about before the match how they've really broadened their palette, I guess, in attack this season and been less structured and less direct um, and allowed those backs to, to, to play ball. You saw for uh, Rob German's try, lovely bit of handling from Luke Hall, the number eight, inside pass. Again, identifying a bit of space and, and playing to that without having a, a structure around that. And then obviously Duncan Williams try and turn over, kick into space. German involved really centrally again and great to see him get the finishing touch to it um, as he departs from Munster as well. So there was so much quality rugby in it and even defensively, you think of German making that try save mm. tackle on Jack Power, wasn't it? Yeah, A really wonderful moment. Loads in it, but moving forward now, building on this prom promise and definitely an improvement in quality in those top teams and the quality of rugby and style of rugby they're playing, which I think people would really engage with. Watching Trinity play is more enjoyable than a lot of Pro 14 games because there's such a fear of losing in those games. There's, I don't know, there's just more pressure, I guess, on the players and, and, and obviously professional game and they're also good at defending. Um, really, the AL is watchable, but it's hard to watch because there's it's so not much rugby on. Watch, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's so much rugby on all the time on TV and um, and, go, and going to those games. It would be just great if they could clarify that. And it's kind of strange that we've gone through the whole season without, seemingly without progress in that area. It's, it's last summer that the clubs kind of rejected that proposal from New Sephora and the RFU to go to two top um, leagues that are essentially semi-professional and, and feed into the professional game. The Carrick Cup that you mentioned, yeah, it was it was probably a great experience for a lot of players, but you, mean, you look at even one of the Munster teams for one of their games, they had two scrum halves on the bench, or yeah. even three. They, they didn't, didn't even have, have a full, full bench. 23, yeah. So you wonder, is it really that valuable a competition? I don't know how high the quality of games was. Um, and essentially the New England Free Jacks were paying for them to be over there. Um, so you'd, you could understand the club's anger uh, particularly at the time of season with taking mm. players away so clearly there's uh, they're at loggerheads there with the RFU and there's there's a good bit of animosity in that relationship it, but it, we just need to get that sorted there's the Celtic Cup as well at the start of the season which I don't know potentially is, is at odds um, without clashing completely um, and that was part of the idea to move it before the season but it seems like we've made no real progress on this and, and it's really hard to gauge the RFU's desire other than how can we get this to serve our professional game which it shouldn't just be about it has to be about more than that um, and the, the the sport itself is about more than just that you know the, the tears below professional are just as important because people engage that way they get into rugby that way they fall in love with rugby that way loads of the guys in the Ireland squad would have loved their experiences with clubs and, and as we've just mentioned there are loads of guys now playing club rugby who are going to go on and, and achieve more so I think yeah, you're you're right. It's probably people putting aside egos and, and getting that clarified as we move forward because then it gets easier for everyone to engage with as well. Yeah, just to touch upon something that you both said, which is how eminently watchable it is. And you mentioned there, Murray, the levels below professional rugby are equally important um, when you kind of mentioned grassroots rugby. But for example, during the year, like February, March, you turn on air sport there's a Leinster Schools game on. It's unbelievable to watch in terms of entertainment, the quality of play. There's still lads doing their leaving cert. You know, they're 17, 18 years old. I've watched UCC play rugby in Division 1B last season as they got promoted. It was like watching the Barbarians. You know, it was unbelievably entertaining. And you just wonder if there was a, a means of packaging that, even the way you can package a schools competition. Like if you can package a schools competition to be watchable, to be something that even a casual fan might leave on the TV as they're flicking through the channels, 
then surely you can do it with a national competition of senior players. Well, BBC um, BBC Wales lost rights to the Pro 14 for this season, so they they wanted to continue their the rugby coverage. So they they actually took on the rights for the um, for the Welsh Premiership, which is their equivalent of the of the AAL, and and they showed games on Friday night, and it was back to the the old rivalries in Welsh rugby, you know, so neat against uh, Pontypridd and they actually started to get some really significant um, viewership and uh, I promise you that I've watched both the AIL quality wise is is far superior you know I think the issue in Welsh Premiership is that you've got a lot of older ex-pros um, just kind of knocking out a, a living where there's not as much there's not as many young players in the system there as there is over here so you don't really go watch that to see the, the next Joey Carby, you know, um, so and I think the standard and and the 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 way the teams want to play is is superior over here. So definitely, definitely, uh, it is something that needs to be brought to the wider public. Whether that's through, you know, uh, a, a TV channel or whether it's through streaming. Um, you know, I know last year I watched quite a bit of the MLR um, because it was available on stream. You know, and um, at least. At least it gives you a, a way of actually watching some some live rugby. So um, I, I'd imagine all those things will be looked at, you know, hopefully over over this summer. Um, particularly with a new sponsor coming in, it's a really good chance just to clean the decks and uh, start afresh. Yeah. Because now it have, I guarantee the product is good. Oh, you know, if you've got a crap product, um, you're clutching on straws. But the the, the basic requirement is um, a good product, um, and you know we just need to get out there. Yeah, I noticed as well. Just to this will be my final thing on it, but like even when a club has a camera at the side of the pitch, like and they have anyway because they're going to be recording games and analysing it, but if they tweet out like a clip, I remember Eamon Mills scoring like an unbelievable try for yes. lads then a couple of years ago. There was a, uh, the IRFU had a couple of cameras, I think, at Con semi-final against Trinity. I tweeted out a clip like from it of Sean French doing a double ankle tap. Mm. People absolutely love it. Like, it's a massive thing in combat sports and a lot of sports. The NBA are massive into it in terms of just using footage to grow the sport. Like, mm. even if you had a couple of cameras at games and just even tweeted out highlights. Yeah, there was a try hide I saw. Uh, yeah. Yeah, know, the, yeah, which was phenomenal. You Unbelievable know, uh, score. So, yeah, there is, listen, the, the, there's quality in bits there that people will actually engage in. It's just getting it out there. Yeah. That's You're it. just alive, Gav, because Corcon won. I have no real I played for Con when I was a kid I have no real allegiance to, to Con I have to say I, I, I've, I'm more of a UCC fan over the last couple of years because I had friends on that team and they did brilliantly uh, they won their playoff match so they stay in, in fair play to them and they did, they, did, they did it actually as well without Paul Kiernan he was probably their best player last season so an unbelievable achievement for them yep fair play to them um, now just the small matter of the European Champions Cup final uh before we get into Leinster and Saris and preview Saturday's game, Murray, you caught up with Rob Carney. Yeah, spoke to him a bit about their um, semi-final success and also looking at Saracens, their aerial game, obviously going to be big for him this weekend and, and probably needs help from, from guys around him. So loads to chat about and good to catch up with Rob Carney. Well, Rob, thanks a million for chatting to us on the 42 Rugby Weekly. Um, it feels like we've got the final that people have probably been anticipating and hoping for for a few years Obviously played Saris last year in the, in the quarterfinal. They weren't quite at the best. Does it feel like this is going to be a meeting of, of two sides who've really been pushing hard in Europe for the last few years? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, you, you take the, the four teams in the semifinals. I think you can argue a point for each of the teams that maybe they could be in the final that everyone wanted to see. You know, Monsters' defence throughout the whole campaign has been superb. 
Toulouse have been playing some awesome rugby scoring outrageous tries uh, and then you have ourselves and Sarri so I think you know Leinster Saracens is, is going to be you know it's going to be a huge occasion and you know definitely we're going to see a different Saracens that, that played us in the quarterfinal last year they obviously do a lot of things well what are the things that stand out for you with Saracens and, and what they bring on the pitch I think their their physicality is probably the biggest thing their ability to get over the game line so many times um, consecutively keep the ball and you know you've owned Farrell there at 10 their, their phase play is it's pretty effective um, you know that they keep their forwards in between the 15s a huge amount they try and get them carrying a lot, but they don't have to work a huge amount. A lot of their their working comes from carries as opposed to, you know, trying to use it's they rely on their backs to to use the full width of the field. Um you know, so they have a very clear way in how they want to play. They've been doing it for a few years now and they're just getting, you know, better and better every week at, at enforcing it. Mm. A lot of people now in, in rugby talk about dual playmakers having a second second or first receiver uh, they seem to really live it though with, with Goud coming in th- there how does that change the picture defensively because certainly Munster seem to struggle at times with that zigzag yeah I think you know for for dual playmakers Saris are the they're the template aren't they um, you know they've got a a superb fullback in Alex Good who plays a huge amount of 10 and if, if that's the type of game that, that you want to play um, you know that is the it's the best combination to do it uh, some other teams look to their centres to do it um, but you know Saracens really have have mastered it and it's it's I suppose an area that I would look at them and him in particular in terms of, of how good he is at doing it and trying to build it in your game or is that something you've looked at that way yeah um, you know it's 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 been a bit of a slower process for me um, you know Stuart is, is he's a big fan of how Saracens play and he wants to, to get Leinster's phase play to that level um, you know so he's thrown me in 10 a good few sessions over the last uh, couple of months trying to just trying to get me more exposure at first receiver brilliant stuff they obviously had a great day aerially against Munster um, and obviously an area you guys pride yourself in. One of the things I want to ask about is, is escorting, shepherding, whatever you want to call it, and how that's changed, I guess, the area of contest. Because it seems now it's not just about Rob Kearney versus Alex Good or whoever it is. Yeah, it's it's been a big development in the game over the last you know, 18 months or so. Uh, aerial battles are getting bigger. Um, teams understand the importance of it now, how it gives you access into a game um, and how it's such a good you know means to getting possession back off the opposition uh, escorting it's a tricky one at the moment because it's not been refereed how it should be um, referees don't want to know a huge amount about it and one of the problem is that you know when the ball is kicked up in the air you've got 50,000 people looking at the ball up in the sky and nobody's concerned about what's happening on the ground. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a tricky one. I think 
Leinster and Ireland, the teams that I've been involved in, have always tried to to play in the right side of the law and hope the referees would would pick up on it. Um, you know, so I think maybe in the past we've probably been a little bit too honest for our own good. Uh, it's happening a lot. Teams aren't getting penalised. You know, so maybe it's time that we join the party a little bit. Because mm. certainly it seemed like Munster maybe were a bit honest at times and you must have had sympathy with Mike Haley going up one on one, especially when the opposition, another aspect I want to ask you about is that batting back. It doesn't seem like some teams now are actually going for the ball, just get get a hand to it almost. Yeah, a, a lot of teams are doing it. We saw Davis Trettle do it a huge amount at the weekend. Um, and I did feel, back, feel bad for Mike because it's impossible to win a ball cleanly if the opposition player is only going up to break the ball. It's very, very difficult. So if you've got your cradle out like this and the opposition guy is coming in with a hand higher than your cradle, invariably you're going to lose the ball in possession. Um, so I think Munster could have dealt with the scraps an awful lot better. Um, you know, and it's it's big turning points. They're big moments in the game. And when you get to finals rugby, those moments become bigger again. Having had a chance to, to look back on Leinster's collective performance against Toulouse, um, obviously a lot of good praise on the outside and, and people really excited by it. What was the feeling inside? Was there a sense of that there's more to come or, or that's Leinster back close to their, their peak? Uh, I think you always think there's more to come, don't you? That's what what high-achieving teams want to do, you know, particularly when you've got, you're going to a final. Uh, I think defensively, it was one of our best performances of the year and that was very pleasing um, you know our discipline at times was still a little bit off um, you know and, and particularly going into a game where you've got Owen Farrell and Saracens he will kick them ahead and they're not really the sort of team that you want to go behind against you know they become a little, a little bit more difficult to beat if you go 6-9 and he keeps the scoreboard ticking over so that is going to be a big area for us going into the final um, but I think all in all it was definitely a step forward in terms of the quarterfinal which we knew that we needed to do uh, we didn't play particularly well in, in the quarterfinal but Ulster were superb that day um, so a step forward um, but certainly we'd like to think there's a little bit more in us You mentioned defensively there and um, I think fullback it's a position where naturally enough defence is so highlighted because it's usually one on one. It was a day when you made I think three one on one tackles in behind successfully, and people probably don't notice it when it happens. W- was that a satisfying access because the fullback invariably gets hung out when they miss that tackle? Yeah, the most satisfying thing for me the whole day was my one on one with Colby at the start of the game. Yeah. Um, and like you say, not too many people I'm sure will notice it, but you miss it. Everyone knows about it. Um, and it's a very difficult place to defend uh, and you know I think any time particularly against a calibre of player like him that you, you do make some of those it's, uh, it's, it's pretty pleasing Super stuff from Rob let's see how he gets on on Saturday how will he get on on Saturday it's uh probably the most feverishly anticipated Champions Cup final or Heineken Cup final that I can imagine era-defining potentially um, 
last time I spoke to you, Murray, about it, you were leaning slightly towards Saris. Are you still leaning slightly towards yeah, Saris? Still, but even less so. <laughs> it's it's re- truly difficult to call. You look at everything that's going to be involved in this game and they're so evenly matched. Um, even on stats about tackle success, line breaks, offloads, they're very, very similar. Leinster probably tend to have a bit more possession in games and Saris probably kick slightly more. Um, so th- those may be elements in, in this game that that we can look forward to, but it's incredibly evenly matched. Even the quality of individual players, even quality of the, the combinations and experiencing combinations as well, and the different weapons they can use and players who can maybe potentially break the game. There's there's so much that they share, um, and there's so much that they share in terms of what they've done in Europe over the last number of years and, and how I think there's been a gap between these two when they're at their best and everyone else. And it's just brilliant we get this game now, having had the quarterfinal last year when Saris weren't at their best and missing a couple of key guys through injury, whereas now they're, they've won every game so far in this competition and they get to take on the defending champions. It's just perfectly teed up. And in a cool stadium as well in St. James's Park, um, I think it could be one of the best ever. Yeah, are you equally excited, Bernard? Yeah, I think whatever team uh, wins this, consider the best European team ever, which sounds um, uh, a bit uh, overhyped. But I I genuinely feel um, this is a real match of two absolute heavyweights. I know Leinster beat Racing last year in a final, in a tight game, but I just don't feel Racing are, are kind of that top level yet of where you say they're European contenders year in, year out, whereas I think Saracens are. You know, Saracens, Leinster are. Toulouse look like they might get back to being in that pot, but, um, you know, Claremont were for a long time. I think they'll get back to it, but I think Racing, and, and you see this season, you know, they have too many weaknesses in their game and, and it's been exposed. But if Leinster can beat Saris uh, on Saturday, um, I think that's going to be a phenomenal achievement because you know Saris are going to play. You know Saris are going to turn up. You know, there's no... Um, oh, how will they handle the occasion? Nonsense. Whatever. They, both these teams have been there, done that. Um, they know what's coming. Um, they know how difficult it's going to be. And uh, you know, whoever wins will, will, I think, deserve to be have the mantle of being, you know, clearly the best team in Europe. And and you know, for this Leinster team, you know, to go back to back. Uh, will will mark them out as being better than probably the ones you know the one the other the other the other three. How will it play out stylistically, do you think, Bernard? Uh, can we expect an entertaining game, a spectacle, or will it be more akin to last year's final where, in fairness, the conditions played a large part and it was a little bit more error-strewn sort of up the jumpers? Yeah, I, I, I'd be interested to see what, how Saris think they can... So obviously against Munster, they thought they could batter them, you know, um, so they didn't kick as much because they just felt that they had the power to, to run over them. Um I'd be interested to see if they think they can run over Leinster um, and if they don't think that then they'll obviously kick a lot more um, and you know Leinster will have to deal with that but I think I think Leinster can stand up to them better than than, than Munster I also think Leinster's bench is is a hell of a lot would be a hell of a lot better than Munster but I, I just was you know in awe of you know after 50 minutes you know, bringing on Vincent Kosh, uh, bringing on Will Skelton, bringing on Schalberger, bringing on uh, Richard Wigglesworth, bringing on Alex Lewington. Tompkins had already come on early. Um, I mean, that's phenomenal. You know, that's 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 incredible depth. And uh, you know, Munster couldn't live with that. Um, Leinster will have Leinster might have the same, you know, names on on the bench, but they have quality players. So um, it's definitely going to be a twenty-three man job. Um, 
uh, uh, the, the, if you look at how Saracens played against Munster, they they ran into the second defender a lot. Okay, so uh, really narrow, really flat on the gain line, little plays off nine, punched holes, punched holes. And the problem is when you run at the second defender, um, it's impossible to get any line speed up. So it's literally, sometimes you can actually, I suppose, dominate power through taking space away. But if they run very narrow off that rook, you actually can't get off the line. So um, it's hard to actually stop the momentum. And uh, uh, it's going to be interesting how Leinster try and defend that, how how I suppose aggressive they are trying to slow that ball down and how much Jerome Garces lets the breakdown be an absolute uh, field day you know <laughs> which is good I, I thought it was I, thought I enjoyed watching the breakdown against Munster uh, Munster Saracen because it was absolutely chaotic you know I mean, it was a lot of jungle <laughs> um, but the team who were most aggressive and, and got there early did well and um, I, I'd be very interested in, to know what his review of that game was, you know. Mm. So I know Munster would have been very unhappy with the offside line with the breakdown, um, which is which is standard. But um, it's what Joel Judge felt was relevant and what he communicated back to Jerome Garces because I've I've known Jerome Garces for uh, a long time and uh, I actually he's a great bloke, um, very relaxed man, you know, and he's well able to handle a big occasion. Uh, but he generally doesn't change. So like he, what I saw against Saracens, I've seen in the top 14 from him. Um, sorry, Saracens Munster. But if he got a very, uh, and the, the reason I question whether he got a very harsh review after that game is because he's been given the final. You know, so either Joel Drews gave him a very harsh review and expected him then to go and implement that in the final, so he's going to be quite sticky around those areas. Or Joel Judge thought he had a great game and uh, you know crack on. In which but, case he won't change at all. No, but if I was if I was uh, <laughs> Mark McCall or Leo Cullen, I'd be trying to find out what the nature of that review was because that's going to change his behaviour or not change it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. It's interesting. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. There's no point studying his games because his games will all be the same. Yeah, but and and how he coached referees in the top fourteen will be consistent. But this is literally the first game in Europe post that the free for all that if was. he wants to be if he wants to be getting more Champions Cup finals um, or getting the the meaty matches in Europe, you know he's going to have to adapt to what Joel Juge wants. Yeah, so you just don't want to be caught on the hop. No, if you're you don't cut hop. Yeah, you you want to know what he's been told. So obviously, you know you know what Munster sent in by ringing Munster. Um, you might know what feedback they got from ringing Munster, but what you need to find out is what he was told <laughs> and would he be rewarded well not necessarily rewarded would he be given a final on the back of a if it was judged to have been too lax or too that i don't know uh lenient a performance in the semi-final it depends on how much judges trust him really you know it was going to be a, it was either going to be nigel owens or uh or a french ref um and um so you know the, ch the choice was obviously poor or himself probably um so it wasn't a massive choice of who could get it. Uh, so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say that that you know he he was in the running to get one uh, or to get this one. But yeah, he could have. It depends. Like I said, it's very much a trust issue between his boss and him. So has he? How has he adapted in the past to uh, constructive uh, feedback? <laughs> <laughs> not well I would have suggested but we'll see <laughs> he's a key player there's so many of them across the pitch loads of talk about Sex and Farrell obviously and how they're going to direct their two teams I actually think it's even more interesting around who the other playmakers in their teams are alongside those guys we know they're going to provide quality they, we know they're going to have direction unbelievable competitive spirit both really strong defensively uh, and kicking games and passing games of absolute class you've also got Alex Goode who I think is as important for Saracens really he makes 
unbelievable amount of line breaks and also his playmaking ability because he gives you that option to go either side of the ruck. And Leinster have obviously worked really hard under Lancaster at trying to have that in, in their game at all times and, and the option of bouncing back and zigzagging in their attack and making it really difficult when teams are trying to bring line speed. He allows them to do that. You saw even his pass to um, Lamasatelli down the left before the Michael Rhodes try. A really beautiful bit of playmaking where he skips across the front of Liam Williams, who was even taken aback by the pass. He wasn't sure if it was for him. And he brings those those moments. You see Farrell even, potentially he's standing to the right of Rook. They go that side. He instantly switches back to the left and then suddenly the picture's changed. You just can't switch off for a second defensively when he's on the pitch. And he's, he's even stepped in at 10 when Farrell's been missing. He's the guy for Saracens. Can Gary Ringrose be the outlet potentially for Leinster to do that or do they do it in a different way by using James Lowe's game-breaking abilities and getting him involved in the game um, in, in, in ways other than him just finishing brilliantly out in the left wing, uh, using his ability to be defenders closer into the ruck potentially, playing off his 10. Um, we know what Ringrose can do with his footwork and he's been unbelievable again in this competition. I think he's actually... I think he's top three for carries in the competition, even above all, all the other forwards. I think CJ Sander and Ryan... And Matt maybe are ahead of him. After that, he's he's been the busiest carrier. So clearly, he's taking a lot on his shoulders in terms of trying to beat defenders and and taking those aggressive lines in midfield. But also, he can play a bit and and distribute as well. So really interesting to see that creative side of the game in what is, of course, going to be a really tight, really well defended contest where penalties probably you, you would presume have a have a big part to play. Who can have that moment where? that creative um, strength breaks out from what is going to be a ferocious contest. So you're saying don't expect a free-flowing spectacle after all, but more so little moments of magic that could define it? Yeah, well, looking at all the finals, that's the way it tends to go. You, you tend to try and take your points and defences generally dominate. Um, that's not to say that it could not could not open up. Both teams can play a bit. I think both of them would be wary of allowing it to go that way um, while backing themselves to, to take... Uh, full advantage of of any opportunities that come their way, even on the like the the aerial stuff has been a, a big talking point as well, and and the way Saracens try to potentially not even win the ball in the air, but get a slap back, and and the the scraps are on the ground. Leinster generally are better than anyone at winning those scraps, I think, and they've taken real pride in those work rate bits of their game. You even saw Richard Wiggles were talking about how quick they are off the ground defensively, and and that's a key strength. So that element of it as well is fascinating, and how Leinster also handle those. Brilliant box kicks from from Saracens and uh, Owen Farrell's ability to hang the ball up as well. Munster didn't do a good job of that at all. We spoke about it. Haley was kind of left uh, in some tough situations on his own. You think of the best catch of the game from Munster was Andrew Conway overhead. Mm. Unbelievable bit of individual skill. But also Tyler Blaindow ran a really excellent escorting line on Liam Williams that didn't allow him to get into the contest and, and, and Conway could claim it. So there's definite lessons there. I think Leinster will be better at that. Um, but it's just one aspect of a, a thrilling matchup. In such an evenly evenly matched game, is there one discernible aspect to either team that's a distinct advantage? Like, is there any element of either team's game that is far superior to the others? Um, I don't know if it's superior, but I think what the difference that Leinster would present to Saracens that they don't get week in, week out is they're going to be up against an a team who are incredibly fit and incredibly mentally strong. So if you look at how Saracens play, they generally, uh, the opposition cracks before before they do. So they, they just force pressure, force pressure. And then somebody tries to, to I suppose, relieve, relieve pressure in an unorthodox way and then they pounce. Um, and I think Leinster, Leinster are very comfortable being uncomfortable. 
So they will relish those moments where Saracens have them, you know, pinned on their own goal line or pinned in their 22 and they will actually feed energy or gain energy from from repelling that and they won't crack. You look back to the the last seven minutes of that Ulster game, you know, Leinster were able to keep the ball or play a phase of play for seven minutes in the 73rd minute till the 80th minute and technically be incredibly proficient. You know, so they Ulster had the ball for four or three minutes. Leinster ran the clock down for four minutes. But in the, when you're running the clock down for that length of period, referees are looking for a reason to ping you. But yet Leinster were just so detailed in terms of their recycle, in terms of their body position, etc. And that shows you that they're very comfortable at executing with massive fatigue. And I, I don't think Saracens come up against that in the Premiership. Even the likes of Exeter, Exeter. The Premiership this year has been poor in terms of uh, there's been there's been Saris and then there's been everybody else to a certain extent Exeter have had moments but they haven't been the, the vintage that we've seen over the last couple of years so um, I just think that the advantage for, for Leinster is they're going to they're going to have a lot more uh, strength in their in their armoury that Saracens don't get on a week in week out basis Can that work then almost in reverse or in contrast to how Saracens will force a team to crack they'll crack after or they won't crack the other team will but if a team doesn't crack yeah. does it then cause you to yeah for sure to absolutely yeah, you've got to try and unlock unlock them in ways that you, you're, you're not used to you know um, and I think that's that's where I, I, I after I watched Munster Saracens that, the Saturday night I was like there's the winner Saracens but I saw enough on the Sunday to believe that Leinster were on the way back up and, and just when Leinster have the the Ring Roses and the Henshaws and the Carneys in their team for big games they're a completely different outfit which is normal um, but I, I think maybe I got a bit carried away with their dip in form post post Six Nations and you know a, a, a non-vintage performance against Ulster although credit to Ulster they, they played and played really well and then just a couple of I suppose below average Pro 14 performances um, and then I saw Saracens and I was like wow you know, but uh, that was on the base that Leinster weren't where they were, where they can be at. I think now they will be. So I'm I'm actually going to go for Leinster narrowly. Oh, there's Bernard's prediction, mm. nice and early, job done. Over to you, So Murray. Has he changed your mind there with that convincing case in Leinster's favour? It is very convincing. I think uh, I think I'm going to stick with Saracens. I think they have those things as well, and um, that's why it's so hard to divide. They have the mental strength. They have incredible the collection of world-class players in nearly every position every single one of their pack and carry and, and they won Grand Slam as well a lot of these guys uh, Saracen's just to edge it but that's not a confident prediction I'm not going to be slamming down loads of money on that and, um, I think it's going to be real close but Sarri's just to edge it Yeah, can't wait for that one uh, Your book winner this week by the way is our good friend Kate McAvoy who suggested that we change the hashtag to hashtag the 42 or W instead of hashtag the 42 rugby weekly which is a bit of a mouthful and long to type (laughs) so fair play Kate we'll sort you out with that thanks a million to everybody for your questions as well this week Uh, there were a lot of them that hopefully we answered without necessarily reading them all out because a lot of them were similar but uh, glad to get a couple out and we will get back to a few more next week when I'm sure you'll have lots to say about a Champions Cup final really looking forward to it we'll be looking ahead as well to the Pro 14 semi-finals when we're back next Thursday but for now enjoy the rugby over the weekend enjoy the big one thanks a million to yourself Bernard and to you Murray and to you at home until next Thursday take it easy